In the early morning hours of August 4th, 1949, a thin, wispy cloud appeared in the sky a few miles northeast of Helena, Montana. In a high wooden tower jutting up from the forest below, a U.S. Forest Service ranger eyed the cloud nervously. She knew that in a few hours, a cloud like that could become a massive wall of thunderheads. These tall, dark clouds often brought rain, but more often, they brought lightning. And lightning started fires. Then, just after lunchtime, a blinding flash startled the ranger. She glanced skyward as a distant bolt of lightning streaked from the clouds into the green forest below. A little over 20 miles away, a 70-foot ponderosa pine tree exploded, showering flaming bark and pine needles. All around the base of the tree, tiny flames caught in the grass and spread slowly in a carpet of glowing embers. Within a few hours, these embers would become a deadly inferno. Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Kate. And I'm Tim. Every Thursday, we'll explore the moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. This is our first episode on the disastrous Man Gulch wildfire of 1949. It was the very first wildfire to claim the lives of Forest Service firefighters and still remains one of the deadliest in U.S. history. This week, we'll explore the conditions that created the powerful flames and the tragic circumstances that put a crew of firefighters directly in harm's way. Next week, we'll dive into the fire as it tears through Man Gulch. We'll also examine the immediate and long-term aftermath of the tragedy for Montana and the Forest Service. We'll gather the kindling right after this. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Helena National Forest in Montana contains almost a million acres of pristine wilderness. Along the eastern swath of this protected forest, and along the banks of the Missouri River, is an area known as Man Gulch. A gulch is simply another name for a valley. It's bigger than a gully, but more shallow than a canyon. 
In the case of Man Gulch, it's a two and a half mile long divot where an ancient creek had drained downhill into the Missouri River. Man Gulch is one of a series of valleys formed by tributaries along the Missouri River. On either side of Man Gulch are high rock ridges covered in trees and rocks, and to the southwest of the gulch, on the other side of a thousand-foot ridge, is Meriwether Canyon. In the 1940s, Meriwether Canyon was a regular tourist destination with a small campground and ranger hut, but the surrounding forest was left untouched. The only access was by boat, plane, or a long overland hike through the dense forest. This didn't stop visitors from coming out on ferries and tour boats to see Meriwether Canyon. But few of them ever made the hike over the ridge into Man Gulch, where the thick pine and juniper trees made it difficult to get through, and even more difficult to get back out. Man Gulch was shaped like a diagonal funnel. It was wide at the northeast end and tapered to a narrow channel as it met the river to the southwest. If that narrow path to the river were to be blocked off, the only way out of the gulch would be to hike over the steep hills surrounding it. This funnel shape made Man Gulch an especially deadly trap in the event of a wildfire. Wildfires are as natural as rainfall in the vast swaths of national parks and protected forests of the United States. Back in the 1940s, nearly 10,000 wildfires burned stretches of the country each year. 75% of those wildfires were started by lightning. In the northern Rocky Mountains of Montana and Idaho, thunderstorms appear frequently during the summer. Each of these storms causes thousands of lightning bolts. And about one out of every 25 of these lightning bolts strike in a spot that could start a fire. So with each summer storm, there are literally hundreds of chances for wildfires to flare up. Many of these wildfires are beneficial to the forest ecosystem. They burn down dead trees and grass, opening space for fresh growth. The charcoal and ash that seep into the soil provide nutrients to the new and surviving vegetation. Even the indigenous tribes of the Northern Rockies recognize the value of fires in sustaining the ecosystem they lived in. Sometimes they even set fires themselves to clear dead trees and grass in order to support regrowth. But sometimes these fires got out of control, in which case native tribes would simply move out of the area. But as eastern settlers moved into Montana at the turn of the 20th century, wildfires became fatal. For many years, the U.S. Forest Service regarded wildfires as a benign threat. There was so much land and so many fires that putting them out seemed futile. There just wasn't enough manpower to reach the fires or contain them. It was easier to wait for rain to put them out. But that all changed in 1910. A massive wildfire known as the Big Burn scorched over 3 million acres in Idaho and Montana and killed 86 people, 78 of them firefighters. The Big Burn wildfire was such a significant disaster that we covered it in a previous two-part episode of our show. Leaving that fire to burn itself out was considered a fatal mistake. As such, the Big Burn of 1910 ushered in a new era of fighting wildfires. The Forest Service policies changed to focus on wildfire suppression. Going forward, if a wildfire was spotted, the Forest Service was mandated to try and put it out. 
The government also erected tall wooden towers across the national forest, placing forest rangers in each one as lookouts, and they established wilderness firefighting teams in towns across the Rocky Mountains as first responders. But across the millions of acres of forest, one problem still loomed large, actually getting these firefighters to the fire. A lookout tower on a high mountain had a field of view of 30 miles or more. A ranger could spot a fire that was far from any road or river. Just because a fire was spotted didn't mean it was possible to reach quickly. Having men walk over 20 miles with equipment before they even started fighting the fire was unsustainable, dangerous, and expensive. The firefighters were exhausted and often found the fire out of control by the time they arrived. But then again, this was their job. They were paid by the hour. Fighting wildfires became a very expensive proposition in the decades after the Big Burn. Fires were extinguished, but only with massive expenditures of manpower over several days. If only men could get to the fire before it spread, they would save trees and money. The fires wouldn't have time to grow, and the men would spend less time putting them out. It was this line of thought that led the Forest Service to come up with an experimental new program in the 1930s. It was called smoke jumping. And while it got firefighters to the wildfire faster, it also put them directly in harm's way. Smoke jumping was a dangerously simple proposition. Take a woodland firefighter, dress him in fire retardant clothing, strap on all his equipment and a parachute, then have him jump out of a plane alongside the fire. And the firefighting equipment wasn't all they needed to bring. Smoke jumpers carried huge duffel bags with food, water, and camp supplies for the hike out of the forest once the fire was extinguished. They also carried a shovel, a saw, and a tool called a Pulaski, which looked like a combination between an axe and a garden hoe. All told, the men were loaded down with over 70 pounds of gear. These fully loaded firefighters would pack into a cargo plane with the help of a spotter, who stayed in the plane after they jumped. Then they'd fly toward the column of smoke and look for a clear landing area as close to the fire as possible. They'd line up in teams of four and jump as a group. They had to guide their parachutes to avoid getting caught in high trees. Most smoke jumpers carried a long length of rope in case they got hung up, but sometimes the rope wasn't long enough to reach the ground. More than one smoke jumper had been injured in falls from trees several stories high. Landing safely was just the first step in fighting the fire. Once they were on the ground, the smoke jumpers set out to dig fire trenches. The goal of these was to create a line of clear ground. When the fledgling fire reached the trench, it would burn out on its own without fuel. Usually, the trenches were all that was needed to put out a fire. And once the fire was out, the men needed only to douse the hot coals left over. The first two active smoke jumpers went out to a wildfire on July 12, 1940. They put out the fire within just a few hours of the first sighting of smoke. The fire barely had time to grow. The total cost of the program in its first year was $9,000, a little more than a quarter of the estimated cost to fight fires using ground-based firefighters. In short, the pioneer smoke jumpers had proven that the program worked. 
Most wildfires were put out early and quickly before they became life-threatening. It seemed like a great solution. Unfortunately, the first decade of successes left many smoke jumpers unprepared for the inevitable moment when a wildfire burned out of their control. By 1949, the smoke jumping program had grown into a full-fledged unit based out of an airstrip near Missoula, Montana. Smoke jumping had become an attractive proposition for young men in the region. Many of them had gained parachuting experience over the battlefields of World War II and now looked to put those skills to use back home. Younger men also admired smoke jumpers and signed up for the program as soon as they turned 18. It helped that smoke jumping also paid well. If the men were on a fire, they would get paid for a full 24 hours of work or more. But the previous season in 1948 had been rainy and uneventful, and some of the smoke jumpers didn't make more than a pair of jumps the entire year. The summer of 1949, however, was already dry and hot. Temperatures were consistently over 90 degrees Fahrenheit in July. The smoke jumpers were anticipating a banner season for wildfires. They were hoping to achieve a rare feat, a $1,000 summer. At the time, these men made $1.43 an hour, so reaching $1,000 in only three months would mean plenty of jumps. And plenty of fires. But the men were raring to go, and in the first week of August, the Missoula smoke jumpers got their wish. Unfortunately, it would cost them dearly. Coming up, a summer lightning storm sparks a tragedy. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, back to the story. August 4, 1949, dawned hot and dry in Montana. Only a few clouds were in the sky over Helena National Forest. But up in the fire towers on the nearby mountains, the rangers kept an eye out for thunderheads. The lookouts were right to be worried. That morning, temperatures skyrocketed to nearly 100 degrees Fahrenheit in Helena. Warm, humid air was rising off the vast forest in big updrafts. As the warm, humid air reached higher levels of the atmosphere, it cooled down considerably. And as the moist air cooled, it condensed to form water droplets. The droplets weren't large enough to form rain yet, but they swirled together into larger and larger cumulus clouds. The warm updrafts from the forest kept the water vapor aloft, 
feeding the cloud formations. As the clouds grew larger, the water droplets were pushed higher. The air is colder at higher altitudes, and it didn't take long for the clouds to grow nearly 60,000 feet high, where the water droplets froze and fell back toward Earth. This cold rush of water vapor fell back into the clouds, forming downdrafts. With this new rush of air, the clouds got thicker and darker until they had formed a distinct anvil shape, the hallmark of a thunderhead. The warm updrafts rising from the trees met the cold downdrafts from the atmosphere inside the clouds. As the opposing rushes of wind swirled past each other, they created friction. That friction charged the air with static electricity, turning the thunderhead into a giant atmospheric battery. It was only a matter of time before enough electricity built up to discharge in an atmospheric explosion, a blast known as lightning. When a bolt of lightning cracks through the atmosphere, the air around it is instantly heated to roughly 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit, nearly six times hotter than the sun's surface. This superheated air explosively expands outward, forming a shockwave of sound, or thunder. Lightning doesn't always strike the ground. Sometimes the lightning streaks within the highly charged cloud. But when lightning does strike, it can release up to 3 million volts per square meter. And the lightning often strikes very narrow targets, like high trees or radio towers. This is due to the electric field between the cloud and the ground. A static-charged cloud creates a negative charge as it fills with friction. But the ground still maintains a positive charge. As the cloud rolls over the landscape, a tall object can intensify the electric field between the two charges, essentially closing the distance between them. The object sparks the electrical discharge and the bolt of lightning flashes between the Earth and the cloud, forming a path for electricity. This means that, contrary to what most people think, lightning actually strikes from the Earth as the electrical path is made from the ground to the cloud. The lightning strike happens in one ten-thousandth of a second, but it can start a wildfire that burns for days. By 4 p.m. on August 4th, dozens of lightning strikes were occurring across the Helena National Forest. Then, around sunset, a bolt of lightning coursed down from the clouds onto the tall ridge between Man Gulch and Meriwether Canyon. A giant ponderosa pine on the ridge had touched off the static discharge and the lightning channeled down the tree trunk into the ground. The bolt superheated the liquidy sap and water within the tree trunk, instantly expanding them into gas. The tree exploded in a blast of sparks. Many of these sparks died out in 10 to 15 seconds, burning into ash before they could even float to the ground. But some of the sparks landed on the ground and became sleepers. Sleepers are hot embers that either lay within the lightning-struck tree or land among the undergrowth and keep their heat for an extended period. Just a breath of wind could cause a sleeper to ignite a flame. Fire only needs three things to exist, ignition, fuel, and oxygen. This fact is behind the trench theory that smoke jumpers relied upon. Remove the fuel in front of the fire and they could put it out. The same is true with oxygen. 
If there isn't enough, the fire will also die, but more slowly. Like putting a cover over a candle, the flame will gradually burn up the oxygen in its environment until there isn't any more. But this same principle makes wildfires all the more dangerous up close. A huge wildfire could consume all of the oxygen from the surrounding air, meaning that any person or animal wouldn't be able to breathe as the fire got closer. This is why woodland firefighters have reported finding animal corpses caught falling over mid-stride or curled up where they'd been sleeping. It's as though the animals hadn't tried to run from the fire. In reality, wildfires can burn up so much surrounding oxygen that many creatures simply pass out after just a few breaths. Then the fire burns over their unconscious bodies, killing them. Big wildfires can also become their own source of ignition. As flames grow larger in a forest fire, they heat the air around them to such a high temperature that trees and grasses several yards in front of the fire ignite without ever being touched by flames. As such, these fires grow exponentially faster. When this happens, it's called a blow-up. A blow-up can cover hundreds of acres in just a few minutes, with flames rushing over the landscape at speeds of almost 15 miles an hour. That's as fast as most Olympic sprinters can run, and only over short distances. If a smoke jumper carrying a heavy pack and tools were caught in a blow-up, there's no way they could outrun the flames. As night fell on August 4th, the lightning storm moved east leaving several smoldering fires throughout the region. But nobody had discovered them yet. In Man Gulch, embers from the exploded pine tree on the ridge had settled into the brush. The glowing shards of wood lay nestled among the long, dry stalks of cheatgrass in the dark, waiting for a breath of wind and oxygen. Cheatgrass got its name because the fibrous root system sucked up all the available water and nutrients in the soil, cheating other plants out of the resources. This meant that cheatgrass grew fast and wide wherever it took root, and Man Gulch was filled with it. The thick grass was waist-high and completely dried out from the July heat. In short, the gulch was a giant tinderbox, and now it had its spark. These embers burned all night, and at some point on the morning of August 5th, they finally caught their breath of oxygen and ignited. These tiny flames, no bigger than a campfire, licked the base of the shattered ponderosa pine tree, searching for more wood to feed on. While the ponderosa took a long time to burn, the fire stayed invisible among the miles of century-old trees. But soon the flames spread to the young Douglas firs. There were two primary species of trees in the region, ponderosa pine and Douglas fir. Each one burned differently. Ponderosa pine had paper-thin layers of bark all the way up the trunk. When the flame caught a slice of bark, it peeled away from the tree as it burned. The burnt-out slice of ashy bark fell off as the flame caught the next layer. This meant the fire took its time on a pine. But while Ponderosa had slowed down the fire, the Douglas firs, once lit, went up like Roman candles. The fir trees burst into flames with a poof. This sent a spray of flaming bark and needles out for several feet in every direction. 
More embers landed in the dry cheatgrass and started more small flames called spot fires. For several hours on the morning of August 5th, these fires stayed hidden. A light breeze blew the faint tendrils of smoke away, but there was no evidence of the Man Gulch fire to anyone more than a few hundred feet from the flames, and the nearest campers in Meriwether Canyon were over a quarter mile away. Even at 9 a.m., when the fire towers all around Helena made their morning reports, there was still no sign of smoke. None of the lookouts reported anything in the vicinity of the Meriwether Campground or Man Gulch. But the spot fires grew in size and spread wider. Eventually, the individual fires joined into a single conflagration on the ridge between Man Gulch and Meriwether Canyon. By noon on August 5th, the wildfire had spread over five acres on the Man Gulch side of the hill. It was finally putting up a thick column of smoke that couldn't be dissipated in the wind. At long last, 30 miles to the southwest, the lookout in the Colorado Mountain Fire Tower spotted the column of smoke. By this time, it was a little afternoon, and the lookout had to squint through the sunlight to see the color of the distant smoke. She knew the smoky hues in the sky could reveal a lot about the fire below. White smoke was just pine needles burning. Yellowy, sand-colored smoke meant the grasslands were ablaze. But the smoke over Man Gulch was a thick, acrid mix of black and blue. Black smoke came from fresh, pitchy pine on fire. Blue smoke meant hot, dry wood was on fire. The lookout was instantly alarmed. Seeing a mix of both colors meant a serious wildfire was blazing somewhere near Meriwether Canyon. At about the same time, 20-year-old fire guard Jim Harrison knew exactly where the fire was burning. Jim had been on duty that morning at the Meriwether Canyon campground when he smelled smoke and headed up the 1,500-foot ridge to investigate. He spotted the flames and ran back down to the Meriwether guard booth where there was a radio. But when he reached the campground and made the emergency radio call to the Canyon Ferry Ranger Station, there was no response. The radio operator was on his lunch hour. Next, Jim tried to alert the smoke jumpers at Missoula, over a hundred miles to the west, but their radio was being repaired. Jim hung up the radio and decided to head back up the ridge to do what he could, even if he had to fight the fire alone. At 12.15 p.m., Jim ran back up the ridge with his own Pulaski and shovel. Meanwhile, the lookout on Colorado Mountain phoned in a warning about the smoke. A few minutes later, a spotter plane took off from Helena Airport and headed toward Man Gulch. Leaning out the tiny side window was Ranger Bob Jansen, one of the most experienced woodland firefighters in the entire Forest Service. After the previous night's lightning storm, he'd been on high alert for fires. But as he flew over Man Gulch at 1 p.m., Jansen was alarmed. The fire was already burning across eight acres down the south side of Man Gulch. Jansen knew that if the fire burned farther down the gulch, the small funnel-shaped valley would act like a chimney. The wind that had originally hidden the smoke would also feed oxygen to the fire. If they didn't get some firefighters to put it out soon, the flames would grow exponentially within a few hours. When he landed back in Helena around 1.30 p.m., 
Bob Janssen made a decision to fight the fire on two fronts. He would call in smoke jumpers to man Gulch, while he took a separate crew of firefighters up the river to Merriweather Campground. These two teams would converge on the fire from opposite sides. It seemed like a simple plan to execute, and Janssen hoped to have the fire out that afternoon. Unfortunately, nothing would go according to plan. A few minutes later, just after 2 p.m., the smoke jumper base in Missoula got Bob Janssen's fire call. The base dispatcher came out of his office and called out a list of 16 names. He told the men they were heading to Man Gulch. They had 15 minutes to suit up, get their gear in the plane, and get aboard. Little did they know that most would not be coming back. Coming up, the smoke jumpers head toward the Man Gulch fire and tragedy. Now back to the story. By the early afternoon of August 5th, 1949, the southeastern side of Man Gulch was ablaze. A team of smoke jumpers was en route from Missoula, and a ground team was approaching from the Missouri River. But nobody had reached the fire yet to start suppressing it. No one, that is, except for 20-year-old Jim Harrison. He had started the morning down in Merriweather Canyon Campground, but now he was high up on the ridge that separated Merriweather from Man Gulch, furiously digging a trench. Jim was well-trained in fire suppression, having been a smoke jumper the year before. Now he was fighting the Man Gulch fire alone, trying desperately to keep it from crossing into Merriweather Canyon. 1,500 feet below, at the Merriweather campground, several campers and hikers were watching the sky with trepidation. They couldn't see the flames over the high ridge, but the smoke boiling up from the adjacent gulch was obvious. The only way out of the campground was by boat, and right now there were none. The Canyon Ferry and tour boats simply arrived whenever their captains pleased. If the fire came over the ridge, the campers would have no escape but to jump in the river and swim. A little after 3 p.m., a loud buzzing noise echoed over the burning ridge. Suddenly, a huge C-47 cargo plane roared over Man Gulch and blasted through the towering column of black smoke. The smoke jumpers had arrived. Their flight had taken an hour, and the parachuting firefighters were packed into the plane like sardines. Now they were raring to get out of the plane and on the ground. It was time to make their $1,000 summer dreams come true. On the first pass, a spotter leaned out of the open rear door and eyed the ground for a safe landing area. The foreman of the smoke jumpers, 33-year-old R. Wagner Dodge, joined him. At this point, Dodge had been a smoke jumper for eight years, jumping on nearly 50 fires. For the past three fire seasons, he had been in charge of all aerial attacks on fires along the Continental Divide. There was no smoke jumper who knew more about fire than Dodge. As he peered out the airplane door, Dodge sized up the fire. It looked like it was burning over 60 acres. On the Forest Service classification scale, this made Man Gulch a Class C wildfire. The scale went from A to G. Each class was determined by how much acreage the fire spanned. A Class C wildfire meant it was burning between 10 and 100 acres, and few smoke jumpers had ever seen anything over a Class B. 
Dodge, for one, had fought two Class C fires in his time, but flying over Man Gulch just after 3 p.m., he had no way of knowing that the Man Gulch wildfire would eventually reach Class G, 5,000 acres or more. From his aerial vantage point, Dodge only saw that the fire was mostly burning along the rocky ground. This gave him hope, since a ground fire was relatively easy to put out. This gave Dodge confidence. He figured they'd have the fire contained by nightfall, and all they would have to do is douse the hot coals. On the next pass, the spotter next to Dodge identified a clear area for landing. It was a stretch of grass about a half mile from the flames and deeper in the gulch. But it was also farther from the river. This position meant that if the fire moved across the gulch, it would be between the men and their escape route. If there was a blow-up, the smoke jumpers would be trapped in the gulch. But from the air, the fire didn't seem threatening enough for this to be a huge concern. The men planned to move in from the landing zone, dig their trenches, and the fire would halt in its path. Meanwhile, the spotter gave the signal and the plane came in low over the clearing for the jump. The smoke jumpers leapt out one by one. After the last man jumped, the spotter shoved out several heavy packs, a giant two-man saw, and the smoke jumper's radio. Each of these items had its own parachute. Usually, everything landed within a few hundred feet of the smoke jumpers. But on this jump, the radio's parachute malfunctioned. The radio was destroyed on impact. The men had no way to contact anyone for help or evacuation if the fire got out of control. It was now about 3.30 p.m. The fire was still steadily burning along the trees high on the southern hillside. The smoke jumpers had all gotten a good look at the fire on their way down, and so far it looked like plenty of other fires they'd tackled. They weren't worried. In fact, the first thing Dodge had the men do was take a break and eat. They'd need their energy, and since the fire seemed to be holding steady, this was the best time to break out their rations. While the men ate, Dodge inspected the hillside to plan their attack on the blaze. He ran a few hundred yards along the ridge to get close to the fire line. Suddenly, a blast of wind rushed through the gulch and caught the flames burning along the ground in front of him. At that same moment, about 500 feet up the hill from Dodge, a tower of fire exploded out of the crowns of several ponderosa pines. Dodge froze in his tracks as he saw the fire move across the tops of the trees. The flames were hopping from crown to crown as the wind caught them. The wildfire had just transformed into a crown fire. And crown fires were deadly. As a ground fire reaches the crowns, the heat of the flames literally cook the gases inside the nearby treetops. Once these gases reach 1,100 degrees Fahrenheit, they spontaneously combust. This combustion blasts flames out from the next treetop in an exponential cycle. As such, a crown fire often spreads much faster than flames on the ground. The Man Gulch fire was crowning, which brought the fire downhill into the gulch faster than anticipated. Meanwhile, the funnel shape of the gulch brought more wind into the flames, feeding them more oxygen. The fire was ready to blow up. Dodge watched the fire coming down the hill. He knew the smoke jumpers needed to get out of the gulch immediately. 
But just as Dodge was getting ready to race back to his men, Jim Harrison came hustling down the hillside. He had been digging his trench when he saw the smoke jumpers land. Quickly, he maneuvered around the fire, skirting it from the south side near the river and moving laterally across the hill. Now, he ran up towards Dodge, waving his arms. Dodge told him that he was alone and that he'd come over the ridge from Meriwether Canyon. This told Dodge that the crowning wildfire blaze hadn't come down the hill to the south yet. There was still a chance they could make it to the river. But first, Dodge had to head back north to warn his men. Knowing they only had minutes before the fire cut off their only escape route, Dodge said, Well, Jim, I think we'd better get the hell out of here. As Dodge and Jim ran back toward the smoke jumpers in the clearing, it was already a few minutes past 5 p.m. Meanwhile, forest ranger Bob Yansen was arriving by boat with his ground crew. As they pulled up, Yansen jumped out onto the riverbank below Man Gulch. What he found terrified him to his core. Yansen couldn't see any of the gulch. The narrow channel that led from the river into Man Gulch was filled with thick, opaque smoke. Yansen told his men to hold back while he scouted ahead. He moved into the smoke, but he was immediately turned back by a wall of fire roaring over the ridge. Instantly, he realized that the fire must have come down the hill into the gulch, cutting off the path between the river and the smoke jumpers. Then, Yansen's breath caught in his throat, and it wasn't fear. The fire was so hot that it was burning up all the oxygen around him. Yansen gasped for air as his vision wavered into blackness. The last thing he saw was a vortex of flames swallowing Man Gulch. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Natural Disasters for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app and type Natural Disasters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It's executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Tim Johnson and Kate Leonard. <laughs>